Welcome to the Virtual Shift, a show looking at the seismic changes happening in healthcare with virtual care at the epicenter. Join me and my guests as we look at key cultural and policy shifts impacting how providers, payers, and patients connect, as well as how care is being reimagined both for today and the future. Hello, and thanks for tuning in today. I'm your host, Tom Foley. You can learn more about this show by visiting the program on healthcarenowradio.com, and be sure to follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Foley Tom, and the hashtag, The Virtual Shift. We have a great guest on, I'm, uh, and this is going to be a two-part series. Our guest today is Dr. David Nash. He's a founding dean emeritus and Grandin Professor of Health Policy at the Jefferson College of Population Health. Dr. Nash, welcome to the program. Great. Thank you very much, Tom, and thanks for your interest in our work. Awesome. So, Dr. Nash, you wrote a book recently, uh, How COVID Crashed the System. And uh, so the, the, the conversation today is going to be about that book. There's a, a, a couple of excerpts that we'll, we'll focus on. So we'll just ju- jump right into that. First, give us some insight as to what motivated the, uh, the creation and the writing of the book. Great. So first, a little bit of background. The Jefferson College of Population Health is the nation's first such school. Uh, we opened the doors in September of 2009, 9-9-0-9 to be precise. So it's a really remarkable achievement on the part of uh, our entire team and our university. Uh, I was the founding dean and stepped down three years ago, and now we're very ably led by uh, Dean Billy Oglesby. So uh, I spent 11 years in the deanship. So we've been interested in the issues of uh, the social determinants of health, studying the healthcare industry. I've been on the faculty at Jefferson for 32 years. 18 years on the Grandin family chair. So this is not a new issue for us, not by a long shot. But as it relates to the book itself, like everybody else, I was at work on Friday, March 13th, 2020. Who could ever forget that day? And it was announced that our university was shutting down. I told my longtime assistant, bring home work for two weeks and I'll see you soon just like everybody else. And uh, sadly, of course, uh, you know, months into it, uh, there didn't seem to be any end to what we were facing in this unprecedented global emergency. The good news is I had befriended uh, Charles Wolferth, a award-winning science writer, at a meeting in New York City in November of 2019. So pre-Thanksgiving 2019, I got to meet Charles at a great meeting. We became pals. Uh, He shared some of his books with me, really fantastic writer. And in the late spring, early summer of 2020, June, July of 2020, six months into the pandemic, Charles and I reconnected and he said, listen, you know, you've got an important voice. I can help you. Why don't we write a book together about the pandemic and its impact on the country. And I thought, good Lord, I've got enough on my plate. But Charles was uh, amazing and said, you know, we we can do this. And so that began the process of uh, finding, you know, um, crystallizing the idea for the book, which uh, focused on the analogy we made to the healthcare system was an airplane that had crashed. And we were the 
NTSB, National Transportation Safety Board investigators, looking for the black box as to what went wrong. And we know damn well what was in that black box. That's part one of the book. And part two of the book is how to fix it. But back in June of 2020, the tactical reality was writing an introductory overview chapter, finding an agent, shopping the book, getting a publisher. And we did all of that in under two years. And Charles and I spent every other week for 18 months on a 90-minute recorded Zoom call. And he is just an amazing individual who channeled our recorded Zoom calls into fantastic prose. And the book was published just this past week. And I'm happy and proud to report that we've already sold over 2,000 copies in its first week out and uh, 48,000 hits on LinkedIn in 24 hours. It's, uh, we're on to something here, Tom, so I appreciate your interest. But the short story is Charles Welforth, a award-winning science writer, prevailed on me and we became a great team. I could not have done it without him and he certainly couldn't have done it without me. So we, we did it as a team, and I'm incredibly proud of our effort. On a very personal note, I'm way too old to have contributed to the care of patients at the bedside. Uh, I'm married to a doctor. We have three wonderful children, and one of our three children is a frontline hospitalist physician who was and still is at the very front line of care of these patients. So I said, well, I'm going to harness what I'm best at, and that's using my mouth and my speaking and translate that into a book. So uh, when I look back, I'll be able to say this is what I contributed to the conversation since I couldn't do it by taking care of patients anymore. Very interesting. And congrats on the uh, on the early success of the book. for Thank sure. you. And when I read the LinkedIn posting, I, I immediately said, I, I want to hear more, and that's ultimately why how I reached out to you. And uh, I appreciate you taking the time to uh, share your thoughts. You know, the the first half of the book, as you said, talks about the findings, right? Highlights the problems, which right. is important. Uh, you, you, we can all talk about solutions, but if you don't have the factual understanding of the findings, then what problem are you trying to solve, right? So right. You, you understand the problem. So tell us a little bit about the opportunities. Uh, that were prevented from our healthcare system uh, having a robust response to the pandemic. Well, you mean what? What were the issues that we uncovered? You know, as we say in the book, uh, Charles and I have our black baseball hats on that say NTSB, and we're going through the wreckage, and the bodies are covered by a tarp, and the wreckage is still smoldering. That's how I feel because we've had a million deaths. Let's just take a moment, right? 500,000 servicemen died in the Second World War, and we've had a million civilian deaths. Nothing like this has ever happened in our country, far more per capita than any country in the world. How could that be for a nation that spends 20% of the greatest GDP in the world, $4 trillion, on an industry that has poor outcomes? No other company would ever tolerate this kind of absurd return on investment or lack thereof return on investment. Or lack so thereof, exactly. There's, there's plenty of blame to go around. And by the way, of course, Tom, none of this is new. We were talking about this when we opened the doors to our college in September of 2009, 
13 years ago, of course. And there are many people who were writing about it way before us. Uh, people like David Kindig and many, many other leaders. We just were fortunate that Jefferson had the resources and the political will to create such a school. But back to the book, look, here are the facts wherever your political alignment is. It hardly matters. America spends $10,000 per person, including children, per year on health care services. And for this $4 trillion annual investment, we are not ranked in the top 10 of any health-related positive outcome as it relates to other Western nations. To put it in blunt terms, we are not getting a return on our staggering investment. And the more we spend on healthcare means the less we spend on schools, on fixing bridges, on improving our infrastructure, on sending kids to universities, and I could go on. So this is, uh, we robbed you Peter, say, we robbed would, Peter I, to I, pay Paul. I apologize for jumping in, but wouldn't you say investment in people, health and wellness is an infrastructure project in and of itself? I know we get sure. tied up in the classic World War II infrastructure means roads and bridges and rail, you know, sure. and railroad tracks and, and things of that nature. But, you know, the healthcare system, you hear it all the time. And I don't, there's only a few examples that I know of where I could see someone uh, taking a lemon and making lemonade, you know, but you talk about three opportunities that were missed in the, in our response to the pandemic. Can you talk to those three? Those well, three items? sure. There's lots of opportunities that were missed in no particular order. Certainly one is leadership. Uh, and again, whatever, you know, the political issues at that time, let's go back and remember that uh, the president at the time was informed on an Air Force One on his return from India that something terrible was afoot and basically decided to ignore it and tried to fire the CDC senior scientist who first pulled the fire alarm. Uh, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, the head of the CDC at the time, the head of HHS, e even important scientists tried so hard to convince the national leadership to declare a healthcare emergency. And we totally fumbled the football from the very beginning. We created a test that didn't work. We didn't issue clear guidelines. It was confusing from the very get go. And what do you mean we, we created a test that didn't work? Can you well, the, highlight that? the original COVID test put forward by the FDA didn't work. It had the wrong reagents. It was inaccurate. It caused unbelievable suffering down the road because it gave inaccurate results. Uh, we were not we were fighting with the World Health Organization, wanting to leave the organization just at a time when we needed global cooperation, and we suffered from American exceptionalism, which is a fancy way of saying if it's not invented here, it can't be any good. Uh, so our whole culture was called into question, the notion of individualism, I know what I need to do and I don't really care that much about my neighbor, exceptionalism, we're great, we'll figure it out. Uh, and federalism, when the government at the time said, governors, you're on your own. Can you imagine governors using 
the National Guard to go and grab masks and ventilators at their regional airports to protect them from poaching from other governors. I mean, this is unbelievable. Historians are going to have a wonderful time sorting all this out. Charles and I didn't have the luxury of a lot of time, so we do talk about these issues. But lack of leadership, lack of preparedness, lack of a national will. But I think the three themes that come out are individualism, exceptionalism, and federalism. That's a lot of isms. But the basic issue is the basic issue is the greatest nation in the world was flat-footed completely in our early response. Other nations did a much better job. Yeah, well, from an from an outcomes perspective, uh, no for question. sure. So I, I would agree. I don't want to get into politics because it, it never leads to a good end. But I, I'm I'm hopeful that you and I can have that conversation without sure. uh, uh, disagreeing or, or just respecting each other's opinion. But uh, do you think in in all that you know we were in the middle of an election year and we had media and the the opposite sides of the equation just playing politics with the issue oh i think there was a lot of politics no question good and bad on both sides uh, absolutely yeah. Yeah. there are no winners here everyone was a loser everybody you know? was a loser everyone was yeah. a loser no question and sure in the rec- retrospectoscope we could talk about complete shutdowns or partial shutdowns china's current policy its previous policy Um, The shining lights of Australia, New Zealand, Italy and elsewhere, we could have learned a lot. Let's talk about Italy as one good example. Jefferson, my home for the last 32 years, has a very close relationship with major healthcare centers and hospitals in Rome, Italy. Those doctors talk to our doctors at Jefferson around Thanksgiving, pre-Christmas 2019 to say something terrible is coming. You better get ready now. Excuse me. And as it turned out, this was a prophetic warning, which we took to heart and enabled our amazing clinical leaders, people like Dr. Bruce Meyer, Dr. John Gleason and an army of others to be ready and be better prepared for the inevitable wave that came from New York City that crushed communities of color and then came south to Philadelphia. So it's not as though we were surprised by what was happening. We were better prepared than most because we overcame some of that exceptionalism and individualism and listened to our clinical colleagues in Rome in particular. As one good example of when you go out of the box and you think about and you look for help elsewhere and you're willing to say we don't have every answer, what can be accomplished? Yeah, so uh, let's let's talk about the impact on persons of color uh, during COVID and the overall healthcare system inequities. Yes. In context of that, so talk to me a little bit why there's this. Uh, you know, certainly the numbers probably play out, but the why you think uh, the community of color were impacted. Uh, much more drastically than than other populations? Well, I don't think it. it's exactly what happened. So yeah. the evidence is sadly overwhelming. Basically, in our country, because we lack universal access and universal coverage, and coupled with 
a lack of a primary care infrastructure and couple that with a poor public health infrastructure, let me give you the numbers. I already said we spend $10,000 per person per year on healthcare services and $400 per year per person on the public health infrastructure. So as my colleague Lena Wynn says, we public health saved your life today, you just don't realize it because you have clean water, vaccinations, not COVID, but everything else, sanitation and all the other things that deliver a far better outcome than the entire healthcare system put together on its best day. So communities of color who lacked access, lacked primary care, basically in the United States, here's the equation. If you are poor, and that's one out of four people in our great founding city of Philadelphia, if you're poor, you have poor health, almost by definition. This does not exist in most of the Western world as it relates to healthcare. So if you're poor, you're in a food desert, you have structural racism, you have suffered from lack of access. The black community in Philadelphia in particular suffers from clinical issues, obesity, coronary disease, in disproportionate numbers, two, three, four times that of a aged match control non-black community. So it's no secret. First, peoples of color in New York City were crushed, and everybody remembers the refrigerated trucks outside Queens General Hospital. And then when it came to Philadelphia, the same thing happened to our uh, minority community. And it's easy for guys like you and me to talk about this, but it is unbelievable what COVID did was just shine a bright light on things that everybody in our business New, we call them now the social determinants of health or the drivers of health, but essentially it reduces down to poverty equals poor health. And this is a complex problem related to education, crime, housing, food. It's a toxic witch's brew of issues, all of which existed pre-COVID. But COVID just shined spotlights on things that people did not want to talk about. But, uh, but let, me, uh, let, me, let me pause you there, uh, doctor. So uh, I had a guest on earlier, Michael Grace. He's a civil rights leader, and uh, he had a previous leadership position at uh, Kaiser Permanente. Yes. And he, and he wrote an article about healthcare in the, in the uh, black community. And he, one of his interesting takes among many were that, and, and I always ask the question now, do you think there's an issue with a lack of access to care or a lack of access to the cure? And the point there being is what Michael Grace said was, hey, I get the, the, the care plan that I'm supposed to get, right? Eat healthy, exercise. But my neighborhood store down the street sells 36, 70 different flavors of beer. Of and, you know, potato chips and pretzels and, and things of that nature, but they don't sell any apples and oranges. That's right? and, and, correct. And the, so, and, the, and the point there being is it's a community that matters, right? It's not yes. just, I, I don't know what needs to change. I don't know if uh, I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but are our freedoms too broad in the context of, yeah, you can do whatever you want, right? But at the same time, you know, we need to get people everybody on a healthy path absolutely that we can all enjoy the the benefits well this goes back to the three horses of the apocalypse that we talked about individualism exceptionalism and federalism 
individualism. Let's let's be real. It's the television show 1883. We're in the covered wagons heading to Oregon. We're fighting the Indians, you, you know, ridiculous. Uh, so a couple that with the federal government who at that time did not coordinate at the regional level, couple that with a broken public health system. Well, that's a recipe for disaster. And if you're poor, double what I just said, triple what I just said. So, of course, cities with large minority populations like New York and Baltimore and Philadelphia and Washington, D.C., you know, got crushed. It's no surprise at all. That's what's in the black box that we found at the crash site. And this is was known by all, but not public knowledge as much until the COVID pandemic. Oh, and then add on in June of 2020, you know, George Floyd, civil unrest, uh, you know, an unbelievable and the national election. It was a recipe for social disaster. And that's exactly what occurred. So this is not an easily fixable flip a switch. We're going to get it going tomorrow. That's why half of the book is focused on, well, what do we do from here? But I think, Tom, for me, as a student of the Second World War, you you know, uh, there's a great trilogy about war in the Pacific by Ian Toll, three books, thousands of pages, which I read last summer. And in the very last page, he's talking about Ben Bradley, who became, of course, the editor in chief of The Washington Post, who served in the Pacific theater as a you know near teenager. And he got home and he and many others uh, in 1945, late summer, early fall of 45, even into 46. And it goes like this. When the dying stops, the forgetting begins. And that's exactly what we're in in September of 2022. A million Americans have died. Are we going to use this, grab this opportunity in our own industry to change what's broken? That's why Charles and I wrote the book. When the dying stops, the forgetting begins. My God, how true. And here we are. We can barely remember those refrigerator trucks outside Queens General. I uh, That's a great quote. And uh, there's so many things that come to true when you talk about the the social unrest that we have. And yes, there were a number of, uh, I'm just going to categorize it as unfortunate, unfortunate, unnecessary, just outright wrong events that occurred. Uh, So I get that. Uh, And it was a reflection of an entire population as to we all think that way. And that's not true. I I grew up poor uh, in in a poor family, three bedroom house with uh, eight folks living in the house. My father was a computer programmer for U.S. Steel. My mother worked in the uh, kitchen at the uh, at the uh, at the school uh, high school, and uh, you know we fought we fought our way out of that house, if you will. Right? It was a great right. house, but we all all six of us had to fight our way out. But uh, so, but you know, there's history. When you talk about the um, when the dying uh, stops, I mean, we forget about history. And you know, when as soon as the event occurs, we start we stop. We, we we start to forget, right? So right. Um, I'm passionate about COVID because my daughter's father-in-law passed of COVID. He's probably the most direct person that I know that died of COVID. Uh, many people have had it that I know, but there is this underlying, I think you call it outright, 
in the book about this. There's there's this underlying cancer. I hate to say it that way, but uh, within our own health system, within our own ecosystem, within our own culture, that that is preventing us from doing ultimately the right thing. That's your correct. thoughts. Yes. So this. So thank you. Yes. The second half of the book. The first half is, you know, woe is me. How did we get here? Why did this plane crash to continue the analogy? And the entire second half of the book is devoted to what we believe are very pragmatic, realistic, doable, fixable issues. Let, let's start with changing the entire economic incentives. We have a system that does not reward improving health, quite the opposite. We have a $4 trillion system where most experts agree one quarter of the entire spending is of no value. In fact, it could be even harmful. So let's start with figuring out maybe we could tackle that waste, as we call it, clinical waste, administrative waste, duplication, unnecessary testing, all of the rest of it, which has been well documented over two decades. And remember, we have 400 plus differences in the book as well. So let's tackle that a trillion dollars of waste and reallocate that money and rebuild an effective public health infrastructure as one thing. Let's, instead of having two type two diabetes drugs in the top four drugs bought by Medicare, let's tackle obesity starting in elementary school. I mean, let's build the doctor we want tomorrow. Let's start working on her curriculum today. I mean, we could go on and on. So that's the second half of the book is a very pragmatic approach without screaming and yelling. There's a lot we could do today to fix the system for tomorrow. And we yeah, drew on interviews uh, with experts from all over the country, more than 25 leaders, both at Jefferson and around the world to help us focus on some of these pragmatic changes. Awesome. I'm going to stop you there. I appreciate uh, your thoughts on this. Dr. Nash, uh, can you tell the audience where they can find the book? Sure. The book is available right now on uh, Amazon or directly from the publisher. The publisher's name is Roman, R-O-W-M-A-N, Roman and Littlefield. If you just go to roman.com online, you could order it directly from the publisher. And the good news is also I am contributing every nickel of revenue from the book to the College of Population Health at Jefferson. So we're here, not not lining my pockets, but we're giving resources to our great college. Dr. Nash, I thank you for your time your and your efforts and your, and your insights. I thank appreciate you very it. much, Tom. I really appreciate it. I want to thank the show sponsors. HP, HP Engage Long Life Cycle Products provides the stability, safety, and security you need plus flexibility and performance designed for today and tomorrow. As well, GenieMD, providing a modular, scalable, and customizable virtual care platform and clinical services to help providers extend care into the home, increasing access and quality while driving new revenue opportunities. If you missed part of today's episode, you can tune in at the same time, 11 a.m. or 7 p.m. Eastern, throughout the week, and be sure to check out the program page on healthcarenowradio.com. And remember, connect or follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, at Foley Tom, and follow the show's hashtag, The Virtual Shift. I'm Tom Foley. Until the next show.